Hello and welcome to the Full Fat Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentation in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conran, and I'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from the Full Fact team. Now, following the racist abuse towards the three England players, renewed arguments over gesture politics and taking the knee are back in the news. And along with it, a phrase that we've all heard a lot recently, the culture war. Now, to talk about this topic as portrayed in the media is Full Fact CEO Will Moy and fact checker Abbas Panjwani. Welcome to you both. Hi, Alexis. Hi, good morning. Now, Will, let's kick off with you. This might seem a slightly facile question, but I'm going to go for it anyway. YouGov polling suggests that only 31% of people in the UK have ever heard the term culture war and say they know what it means. That's pretty surprising, given how much the term is being used in the media. So, what actually is the culture war? And do we actually all agree on the terms defining it? I hope to be part of that 31% of people. <laughs> the culture war is a um, phrase that it's a media friendly phrase, but it's talking about something that um, probably it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone else. There's always been clashes of values in politics and clashes between different groups of people with different priorities. But the culture war now is referring to a collection of things that are said to split people strongly along those lines. And of course, you can believe different things about different issues. You don't have to have one point of view about everything on, you know, in this collection. But traditionally, there seem to be things that bring a conflict between, if you like, orthodox points of view and if you like progressive points of view. Probably you won't like either of those labels if you're heavily invested in a culture war. So the term started in America, which is obviously a highly divided society politically. Um, things like abortion gun rights and the legalization of drugs are polarizing issues there, not necessarily determined by things like ethnicity or class or political affiliation, but by a worldview. And if you knew someone's stance on abortion and gun rights, you'd actually be reasonably able to guess their view on drug legalization. This has been imported into the UK over the last decade or so. More prominent culture war issues in the UK recently would be transgender rights, taking the knee and arguably Brexit. In short, that original orthodoxy versus progressivism definition of a culture war could be redefined for the UK as, as a recent Times front page put it, woke versus non-woke. Oh, I was kind of hoping we were going to get through this podcast without mentioning the word woke, because that's another word that I wonder whether people are all agreed on what on earth woke and anti-woke means. People have different definitions of it. And actually, you can't give a definition that would satisfy everybody. But if you look at the research, a recent study from King's College London suggests there's actually four public divides. They talk about your traditionalists and your progressives, but also the disengaged and the moderates. So this two-way split that makes for simple stories actually hides much more complexity, both on individual issues, but also in the general moods of the public. And the thing to keep coming back to is the thing you said at the beginning, Alexis, that actually a lot of people just don't care as much as the people who are writing the stories about this. Well, let's uh, look a little bit deeper into the aftermath of the Euros. It's a little bit sad that after the best performance by an England team in 55 years, that uh, the aftermath of what was an exciting final, albeit it wasn't the result that people were hoping for, we are not really talking about the football uh, almost a week on. We are talking about 
quote unquote culture wars. So let's look at that and look at the social media companies that again have been dragged into the spotlight. The Home Secretary Priti Patel really put quite a lot of onus on the social media companies for allowing what we saw in the aftermath of, of the penalty misses of the three players who missed those penalties, receiving an extraordinary amount of, of really horrific abuse. Now, something that's been going around social media companies in the last few days since we're recording this has been the claim that, look, Facebook and Instagram, they can instantly identify posts talking about the coronavirus and automatically put a link to their COVID-19 information centre. Why, if they've got the capacity to do that, can't they do anything about racist abuse just as fast? Do we know why? Uh, yeah, because they can't do the first thing and they can't do the second thing either. <laughs> right. They're rubbish at identifying COVID misinformation. The police had set out a, a post warning people about financial scams related to COVID and Facebook have flagged it as potentially a scam post itself. We've seen Facebook flagging posts which mention the place Plymouth Ho because they think it's somehow a derogatory post because they can't get their heads around the name Plymouth Ho. Actually, the technology these companies use to track health misinformation is full of errors. All machine learning technology is full of errors. And what has happened in the pandemic is the companies have been encouraged to ignore those errors and take down, if you like, more stuff than can legitimately be taken down because of its health risks. You're always going to have a problem in one of two directions with this technology. You're either going to take down too much or too little. During the pandemic, because of the health risks, all the political pressure has been on taking down too much. And there's been very little countervailing open democratic transparent scrutiny saying, actually, you can go too far and what's protecting our freedom of expression during this phase. So the idea that the social media companies can just sort this out with technology is an idea they'd love to sell you, but it's wrong. So what's the solution, I guess? Is it more manpower? Is it the fact that we still need to have people monitoring all these posts? Is that even possible? Well, let me take you back to your original point. You mentioned Priti Patel and uh, the pressure she's been putting on social media companies. Let's start with when you have a problem with political behavior, you cannot solve it simply by controlling what people can see or share online. Content moderation doesn't solve behavior issues. Tyrone Mings, the um, footballer, challenged Priti Patel because he said her own political behavior had stoked the kind of racism that England's team members had been experiencing. You have to make your own mind up about what you think of her comments and his comments. But the fact is how our politicians choose to behave influences our online environment and political debate more generally. And that takes us back to this point about the culture war being imported from America. Over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen more and more online campaigning, more and more highly targeted advertising, pushing specific messages and election law not updated to make that transparent and to make that actually accountable for those of us who don't have the power to run 10 million pounds national election campaigns. So we need to scrutinize people in power about their behavior. And then we do need to scrutinize the internet companies. Yes, they can roll out improved technology. That is certainly true. But yes, they actually need to spend more money on human moderators if they're going to moderate this kind of content effectively. 
But the idea that we can just leave the behavior as, as an unchallenged problem and deal with this through content moderation is missing the big point. The big point is actually people behave in ways that we as a society want to reject. If that's what we really think, then that's the problem we have to solve. Let's uh, bring Abbas uh, into this, who's been patiently uh, listening to us rabbiting on. Uh, Abbas, you have been looking into how uh, certain buzzwords like wokeism, cancel culture, uh, associated with a culture war, have been treated by the newspapers. And we've seen a lot of studies go about, a lot of polls being uh, being conducted of whether people understand what those terms mean, how many people agree or disagree with the terms. So you've looked into, well, let's look at the Times. Uh, the Times have made a big claim that wokeism is the biggest dividing line for voters. But um, there was something, um, well, you had to look into this claim, which means there was something to look at. Yes. Yeah, so this was from a poll done by a guy called Frank Luntz, who is a famous pollster in the US, a Republican pollster. And his results didn't find this at all. He asked a representative sample of UK voters, what are the biggest dividing lines in Britain? And asked them to select up to three from a list. And 20% selected woke versus non-woke, which was the seventh most selected option. But the Times ran it as saying it was the most selected option in its headline. Also, the poll asked people what the biggest concerns were, and again, presented them a list of sort of ideological terms. And wokeism came third with 23% of people saying that it was the issue that concerned them the most behind racism and religious fundamentalism. But this list itself didn't include lots of things we know the British public actually care about. So when you ask them, and there is a, a poll that is done by Ipsos Mori, the pollsters every month asks them what are the things that concern you the most and doesn't give them any sort of options to choose from. The things that come out of the things like education, the pandemic, the economy, climate change, the police, crime, things that are perhaps more tangible. And what's quite interesting is that essentially the press is reporting on the culture wars, on woke issues, day after day, it's all encompassing. And then it's reporting on how important it thinks that this issue is, or the public think this issue is, but changing that so it sounds like it's a bigger issue than it actually is. There's almost a kind of self-fulfilling narrative here. There's a sense that you tell people that lots of people care about the culture war and about wokeism when maybe they don't actually that much, which kind of justifies your decision to run articles about this day after day in the national press when actually it doesn't seem like many people care about it really all that much in the grand scheme of all the things that affect them in a more sort of real tangible way. What about uh, the newspaper The Sun? They also made a claim that 82% of people had first heard of the cancel culture term in the last year. How uh, reliable is that fact? Yeah, so that's also not true. I mean, it found that only 51% of people had heard the term at all, let alone how many had heard the term in the past year. The poll that The Sun was reporting on found that around a third of adults, not 82%, had first come across the term in the past year. So again, there's kind of a divide here about what the newspapers like talking about quite a lot and what people are maybe paying attention to. One interesting thing is that we know that if you basically suggest to people that lots of people care about an issue, that they are themselves more likely to care about an issue. There's a 2014 study out of Stanford University, which asked people, do you support or oppose these policies? 
and told some of them that 20% of the public supported these policies and others that 80% of the public supported these policies. And the group that were told that 80% of the public supported those policies were more likely themselves to agree. Telling people that cancel culture is really important, you should care about this, may actually influence them into thinking that themselves, even if, if they weren't predisposed to say that in the first place. So yeah, there's a there's this case of the papers almost creating the agenda that they want to um, want to address in their articles. Are the people driving the polls or are the polls driving the people? Now, of course, that, that could be a conversation for another day. But as we touched on polls, Abbas, and you use terms such as representative sample, there are other things around polls such as weighted sample, etc. Sometimes it's very difficult. And again, newspapers sometimes, sometimes do a very good job of hiding who's paid for the poll, who why is the poll there? You know, sometimes it could be uh, away from politics. It could be a poll about... About, um, you know, tooth decay. But of course, then you dig dig deeper and you find out that it's actually a toothpaste company that have, have paid for the poll. So I guess the question is, what are the important things we should look for, Abbas, when we are confronted with polls? What work can we do ourselves away from what the newspaper headline is, away from what the newspaper tells us the poll says? And actually, what should we be looking at in those polls to find out what the real information behind them is? So newspapers that report polls, those polls are usually published by the pollster themselves. Um, Not always, but in a lot of cases they are. So you can go to YouGov's website or Ipsos's website and often find the poll that's been reported on because those are the companies that will be that have access to the you know large groups of people that they they survey either online or have people that go out and knock on doors and and, and get responses that way they're, they're the ones actually doing the research um, and the times or whoever might just be paying for it the key things i would say to consider are who has actually been asked these questions so let's take the one that was reported in the times they did say this is a poll of uk voters but that's not a poll of UK adults, let's say. And you might think, for example, that actually people who are more who vote more often are probably more likely to care or be clued into these issues around political culture wars anyway. So even if the results have been reported correctly, there's something there about just be aware of who is this meant to represent. The only reason that surveys are important and useful is that they represent a group of people of interest. And so if you've got a poll of just people on Twitter who follow me, that that's not important information. It just tells you what those people thought, not what any important group of people thought. Yeah, I, be, I mean, exactly right. Any any poll which just asks a bunch of people to choose to answer a question is going to give you misleading results. And there was a great example of this, like the one Abbas was talking about, asking people what are the biggest issues facing Britain today. A pressure group by the name of Fair Fuel UK put a poll on its own website asking people what the biggest issues facing Britain today. And fuel prices was one of the options they gave people. And lo and behold, fuel prices became the top issue facing Britain today. It's obvious nonsense. If you've got a group of people who all share something in common, they're not going to be the same as the general public. And Twitter polls are just like that. They're for people who follow a particular person or hear about a particular poll won't be representative of the general public. In fact, people on Twitter aren't representative of people in the general public. That Fair Fuel UK poll actually led to an article in The Sun claiming that fuel prices were the biggest issue facing Britain today some years ago. So this generating evidence that your thing is a big thing has a long history. We've talked about who's commissioning it, 
Who did they survey? What about the way they've asked the question? Because that could be hugely important in the results that they get. Absolutely. So one big issue with polling is kind of leading questions. I'm sure many people have seen the clip of Yes Prime Minister from all those years ago where Sir Humphrey indicates how he can get two completely opposing answers out of the Prime Minister on national service by kind of asking him sort of leading questions leading up to that point. Well, the party have had an opinion poll done. It seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back national service. Well, I have another opinion poll done showing the voters are against bringing back national service. <laughs> so... If you wanted to assess the extent to which the public supported the Prime Minister, a very balanced way of asking that might be, to what extent do you agree or disagree that the Prime Minister is doing a good job? A slightly less balanced way of asking it might be, to what extent do you agree the Prime Minister is doing a good job? And we know that just removing that and disagree can actually lead people to just say, yes, there's, there is this kind of tendency in polling where if you say to someone, do you agree, they're more likely to say yes than no, even if they don't agree. There's this uh, kind of uh, acquiescence bias, it's called. And a really misleading way of uh, asking it might be, following the UK's fantastic vaccine rollout, to what extent do you agree that the Prime Minister is doing a good job? Where you're basically handing over something that might you know, prompt you to say, yes, I do agree, based on that. So have a look at the question asked. Other things are make sure that a decent number of people were asked. Bigger isn't always better, but generally you don't want kind of polls going below like a thousand people if there's just a poll of a hundred adults like how much is that really going to tell you and also the sample should be representative it should actually represent the group that is talked about more widely it's hard to always know this but for example look for red flags if you see that this poll is meant to be representative of pay adults but you find that 70 percent of the people surveyed were over 65 or 80% were men, an indication that maybe this isn't the most representative poll in the world. But it can be really difficult. And this is really, you know, why newspapers themselves should act better, because, yeah, it's, it's difficult for the public to understand all these things. Abbas, this is really useful stuff, I'm sure, for, for everybody listening to do their own homework, because that's that's what we like, giving people the tools to do their own research. But can we assume that big polling companies such as, you know, YouGov, Ipsos Mori, all the big famous ones, can we assume that they follow all these rules? Or is it worth checking even with the big ones? By and large, the big polling companies, the members of the British polling council, um, and they will advertise that because that's kind of a trade uh, organization and, and that sets standards will run polls accurately by and large in terms of the representativeness and the size of the poll done where you might want to have a little bit more of a look is the exact question wording because that can often be influenced by the client but the big thing is how that information is then put out by the press or whoever it might be right and checking you know side by side you know you have said that they surveyed uk adults what is this paper telling me are they saying that it's about people in Great Britain or England or voters or taxpayers, you know, these subtle differences mean that actually, whilst the pollster might have done a perfectly good job, it's not been talked about correctly as it goes disseminated. Okay, thank you. I find polling absolutely fascinating. There are some dark arts of polling for sure. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial and you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. We'll be back at the same time next Friday morning for our last episode of this series. <laughs>